Hey everybody, welcome to Tonebenders. Today I am running solo, Renee isn't with us. You can follow me on Twitter at AzimuthAudio and Renee at Renee underscore Coronado and the podcast at The Tonebenders. Okay, before we get going today in our last episode, episode 62, at the end I said if people have any ideas for future episodes or they want to do a segment themselves to reach out to us and then I gave out the wrong email address to reach out to us at. The correct one is info at tonebenderspodcast.com. So if you sent us something, please shoot us a new email because we would not have got the last one because of that mistake. So sorry, everybody. Okay, back to the business of today's podcast. We are doing our second reading guide today. The first one was a summer reading guide. This one's going to be kind of a fall reading guide, although it was originally intended to be a summer one, but it took me a while to get all the authors together and get this one edited. So today we have four different authors that have all written pro-audio related books recently. We have David Weiss, who is the co-author of the new brand spanking new book, Music Supervision, The Complete Guide to Selecting Music for Movies, TV, Games, and New Media. Damien Kassbauer checks in with his two-part tome, Game Audio, Tales of a Technical Sound Designer 1 and 2, which he has put on sale for 25% off for the next few weeks because he's featured in this episode. So all Tonebenders listeners who are interested in the book, go get it. You'll get 25% off if you act fast. After Damien Kassbauer, we're going to have Jay Rose, who is a noted raconteur, who talks about his book, Producing Great Sound for Film and Video, Expert Tips from Production to Final Mix. Up next, we have Rick Veers, who's going to give us a reading from his brand new book, Make Some Noise, Sound Effects Recording for Teens. There's even a special uh, guest appearance by his son, Sean, in the reading. So stay tuned at the end of his clip for that, because it's pretty cool to hear from Sean. Finally, we have Gordon Hempton, who graces us with a reading from his newest book, Earth is a Solar-Powered Jukebox. Gordon has made a permanent discount code available on his site for our listeners, so you can get 20% off the purchase of this book or any other Quiet Planet ambient sound library. All you have to do is enter the code TONEBENDERS when you check out. You can find the links on how to purchase any of these books on our site, and if you're going to go buy them anyway, grab it through the TONEBENDERS Amazon link. You can get it from our webpage, there's links straight on our page, or you can go through uh, the Amazon link at the top of our website. If you're going to get it anyway, it costs you nothing to go through us. So we just get a little kickback from Amazon to help keep us afloat. Remember, we have no ads, so these little things really help us pay the bills. Okay, let's get started. First up is David Weiss. I first became aware of David because he runs a great site called sonicscoop.com. If you don't know it, go check it out. They cover lots of things happening in the pro audio world. They're mostly focused on music production, but there is a ton of great content to be found there. When I saw he had co-written a book about music supervision, I was intrigued. When I first started out in this business, I would not yet kind of figured out where I wanted my focus to be in the sound world. I found myself doing lots of smaller projects where I was the entire sound department. I would have loved to have had this book back then. I spent days trying to learn how to get rights for songs, and when the project was finally mixed, I kind of just crossed my fingers and hoped I'd done things properly. The content of this book is quite a bit outside my work focus currently, but I found myself ripping through it as is really interesting subject matter. I started my interview with David by asking him to give me the elevator pitch for the book. It's pretty simple. If you want to understand how music gets synced to picture, then you need to read this book. This is the leading resource on the topic that will walk you from A to Z on how music gets paired with picture. 
I'm going to read the, the intro paragraph. As with almost any other profession, the personal connections that music supervisors cultivate, maintain, and build on are among the biggest keys to success. Whether it's with the project's producer that hired you, the composer you hire, the artist you license, or the legal advisor you communicate with, knowing how to manage relationships can make all the difference between an award-winning production and an utterly forgettable soundtrack. So that's something that we really try and stress again and again throughout the book, but we really emphasize even more deeply there in chapter five is your reputation as a music supervisor, your reputation, your brand, and and the way you interact with people is, is going to be very important to the success that you attain. Uh, at the end of the day, music supervisors often are able to get songs licensed not necessarily because they have the biggest checkbook available to them, but because they are capable of massaging the situation, finding opportunities for quid pro quo, uh, making friendships at last, being authentic uh, as they do these things. Personality and psychology have a great deal to do with, with what makes a music supervisor. And, and if if a good deal of your audience is, Audio editors, uh, and sound designers, a lot of times that's, that's not always the measure of how far someone can go. Uh, I don't know any profession where it doesn't help to be a nice person. I know a lot of audio editors and sound designers and, and some of them are, uh, they're not the most social creatures, but, but they go really far because they're amazing at, at what they do. It's, really hard to be a music supervisor that's that reaches amazing status but they're 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 socially inept it's i i haven't interviewed anyone who who wasn't it's really good to talk to and deal with and remembers that up the road too uh cue sheets licensing and legal issues are all necessary evils i suppose of navigating music supervision and and doing your job properly just like any other job, there's metadata uh, that has to be considered. There, there's the more tedious aspects of a job that, that just go hand in hand with the creativity that the job is actually associated with. Cue sheets are extremely important to get right because that is how you're going to ensure that the rights holder of the song you licensed gets paid, uh, gets paid the right amount, gets paid when they should get paid, and if you drop the ball on getting the cue sheet uh, submitted properly to the performance rights agents, agencies, and that's where they go to uh, SOCAN in Canada, CSAC, uh, ASCAP or BMI in the U.S., and, and all those other performance rights societies, as well as the production companies they get challenged through. If you don't do that right, then the person who's supposed to get paid efficiently is then subjected to a great deal of paperwork to get to get paid what they're due. Uh, and then that goes back to the working relationship. They're not going to be that eager to work with you again. Um, they certainly won't be eager to cut you a price break uh, because if you cost them time, you're going to cost you're going to cost them money. You're going to cost yourself money and time uh, by having to backtrack and, and get the cue sheet submitted properly, making licensing requests can be tedious and not that fun. You found the song that you like. Now you've got to file a license request, get it off to the publishing company, 
and or the record label that's in charge uh, of that song or going directly to the artist. Different levels of formality may be required, but um, that's part of it. Making those requests creates a massive email trail. Uh, legal issues, that's just something that everybody has to pay attention to. They have to know that they really – that the person who's licensing them the song – has the right to license them the entire song. Uh, the the most obvious and frequently heard wrinkle in that in the legal landscape is if there's a sample in a song and the person who composed the song and put it out there didn't actually get that sample cleared. Things like that have happened and created enormous headaches for music supervisors and production companies down the line. Uh, we advise music supervisors on how to indemnify themselves and their production companies so that they don't get tripped up by something like that. If you go to the book, you'll see sample cue sheets. Uh, exactly. Uh, we try and demystify as many of these things as possible. Uh, we have a sample licensing request. We have, let's see, a sample, yeah, a music supervision business schedule A, standard terms and conditions. Uh, so, so if someone is reading this book and they get hired uh, as a music supervisor, this we have a sample agreement that they can uh, present so they get contracted. Uh, so we do as much as we can uh, to to help people along and get started on, on the legal side. One of the differentiators for the book is these one-on-one -on -one interviews that we have with pros in the field. And the profiles we really believe are a, are a strength of the book. It, we have Payman Maskin. He's the music director for Media Arts Lab. That basically means he's the music supervisor for Apple. Uh, we have Mitch Davis and the Music House Poll. Uh, we profiled how they did a Instagram campaign for Pepsi. Uh, so that's another thing is just all the possibilities have opened up on social media and all the social media channels. Paul Greco from J. Walter Thompson. Um, Mark Petty from Gearbox Software, who does a, a ton of popular video game titles. We've got a new website for the book. It's musicsupervision101.com. So you just heard David say the website for the book. Go check it out. You can find an Amazon link on the episode page for this episode on the Tonebender site if you want to link through us to get it. Next up, we have Damien Kaspauer. I hope you're already familiar with him, and if you're not, you're in for a treat. He's the co-host of the fantastic Game Audio podcast, which is a must-listen-to resource. He has an amazing blog called Lost Chocolate Lab that has posts dating all the way back to 2004. His Lost Chocolate Lab Twitter feed is a mandatory follow if you are interested in audio and game audio in particular. He recently released his two-volume collected works, and I reached out to him to tell me about it. Tales of a Technical Sound Designer, Volume 1 and 2, like so much writing in my time that I could not, uh, I could not just put one out. I had to go for the gusto and went for a two-volume set. It's chock full of goodness. Ten years of writing about game audio from even before I was a professional working in the industry, writing was a way for me to kind of process and understand uh, what I was learning at the time and was my feeling that by sharing that and pushing it outward that other folks who were at that point in their journey as well into game audio would be able to benefit from that. We all could kind of 
keep each other honest about things. Uh, you know, the writing is not always um, the best example of grammar and literature in the world. Uh, it's very much, you know, written with my own voice, using my own unique way of filtering the world of game audio. But after 10 odd years of having done that both in an amateur fashion through the Lost Chocolate Lab blog, as well as, you know, semi-professionally for Game Developer Magazine, it felt like a good time to try to pull that all together into a couple of volumes felt like a great way to expose a new generation of game audio folks to the writing or to kind of fold back around some of the history of game audio. Over time, as I was trying to shape it into something that I felt like had a value for people, both historically, looking backward, to some of the things, you know, in the beginning of my career, it was kind of like, hey, hey, why can't we randomize wave files? That seems like something we should totally do. And it's, it's in volume one. It's, at this point, a curiosity, right? Because I think no one can imagine a time when we could not randomize wave files or volume and pitch. And so it's kind of fun to have it in there um, just as a signpost for where we've been. During a phase of my career where I, as a freelancer, I would oftentimes be making up time in between things uh, and staying focused and kind of sharpening my tool set as a technical sound designer. And I felt like one of the best ways to do that was as a player from this side of the screen, really playing as many games as I could. And in the course of that, um, coming to understand technical sound design or implementation from a player perspective. Because technical sound design, a little bit of a dark art, not a whole lot of, um, not a whole lot of literature on it. Uh, at the time, there, has, there have been quite a few books now in the interim that uh, expose that from a tools perspective a little bit more. But like techniques and tricks and stuff like that are or have been, you know, very closely held, somewhat proprietary, maybe even locked into tool sets. But what I found uh, with both the footstep and racing game sound study is that if, if you take a step back, certain consistencies start to emerge across all the different titles. You get things like, um, you know, how racing game simulations handle surface friction for tires across different titles, right? And once you've started to identify these specific areas that kind of everyone's doing, but everyone's kind of doing differently, then it became really interesting to start comparing those uh, and kind of weighing the benefits of each, uh, both in what they contribute to the player experience, but also from a technical standpoint and how to do it. And I was lucky on the racing game sound study to have a smart guy named David Nichols, who was just a super gearhead, um, really into cars and along for the ride provided a huge depth of vehicle and motor experience and a game audio uh, guy. 
his ability to bring kind of the physical reality of that world to the player perspective that we were both having as we were playing through these different games was really valuable and just contributed to, you know, our ability to expose some of these systems that unless you work at the companies with the tool sets, you might not really be able to pick apart so delicately. And so that was our attempt to kind of pull that information out across a wide swath of games. Also true for the footstep sound study, like patterns started to emerge, you know? Okay, so we've got first person footsteps, we've got third person footsteps, and then around that same time, you had this kind of squad type uh, gameplay where, you know, in your third person view games like Dragon Age or Mass Effect, uh, you'd have, you know, a team of folks who would follow you around. And, you know, how do you handle footsteps in that situation as opposed to an Assassin's Creed Prince of Persia kind of, uh, yeah, first person fully parkour kind of game, right? And so, and so these were the kind of minutia that started to surface when you looked at a very specific aspect of game audio across a very wide cross-section of games. That's kind of how the sound studies emerged, you know? I think there's room for more. And in my career, I've just kind of whittled it down to really having, um, taking great pleasure in being able to connect the dots between great content creators and, and the games that are being made understanding how to get dynamism and reaching for you know the best system to support the gameplay is what my career is has really been about and i've been lucky to work with a bunch of um folks who have helped shape that for me and a lot of great opportunities to learn and understand the different needs of a project and the different ways to solve for the interactive challenges that come with the manipulation of wave files or even now you know the procedural synthesis that is starting to get unlocked across different uh, areas in in games just facilitating the dynamic playback of sound in relation to the game in the best way possible and finding that that sweet spot book is available on blurb uh it's blurb.com slash user slash decastbauer and you'll find uh links to purchase the pdf versions of each of the volumes as well as uh the ability to publish on demand either black and white or color uh soft copies that uh yeah, they shoot them out and deliver them up. And yeah, it's, it's fun to have them on the bookshelf. And I think there's, there's always room for physical media uh, in that way because it, it, there is a bit of out of sight, out of mind on a hard drive that, uh, that makes it hard to, to discover even what's in your own library digitally, right? I just love circling back to stuff and having it right there in front of me is the best way for that. Uh, so I'm a big fan of that, especially with regards to reference materials.
Damien has put both volumes on 25% off for the next few weeks, so go get it now through blurb.com. A direct link can be found on our site. And this guy's a great guy, so let's support him. Okay, you're about to hear a small section of an interview Renee and I conducted a few years ago with author and raconteur Jay Rose. He wrote a book that is an excellent resource for the entire sound process for film and video. It covers capturing the sound on set to the final mix, and there is a chapter dealing with just about everything. I loved reading the copy of the book that he sent me. I learned lots of things about production sound that have helped me out in my post work. But for some reason, the interview as a whole never saw the light of day as a podcast episode. So I'm glad we can get some of it out in this episode. Here's Jay telling us why he is the right guy to cover a book that's teaching us so much about the audio post workflow. I've been very lucky in that, first of all, in that I had a career that started doing everything in film. I worked on documentaries where I was doing the miking and mixing this little mixer which had a hard wire to the camera where there was a magnetic head. Doing booming, editing, editing 35 mag, editing 16 mag, and eventually ending up editing ones and zeros on a screen. Between that and the fact that I'm in Boston, those both helped the book. I'll, I'll explain the Boston thing. I realized that had I moved to L.A., which I was certainly tempted to early in my career, I'd be mixing. I'd, I'd be sitting in a dub stage as the dialogue mixer, you know, the, the, the head mixer on a program, and that's all I would do. There are guys in L.A. who do nothing but record Foley. Different guy records the voiceover. Different guy records the sound effects. One person edits the dialogue. Somebody else edits the music. Somebody else edits the sound effects. This is on a show that doesn't have particularly elaborate stuff. Within the dub stage itself, if I were mixing dialogue, there'd be somebody sitting next to me mixing sound effects. You'd get so specialized, which was necessary during the Hollywood studio system, and it's hung out in L.A., and it's the way things are done there. On the one hand... Everybody learns a great workflow where they can pass a job from one person to the next. And I reflect that in the book. But on the other, with the kind of stuff that I've done here, where I can be a jack of all trades and still manage to get pretty good at some of them, it gave me a much better perspective on writing the book. When I sit and talk to my production mixer friends who go out on the set, who are the A number one call when a production comes to New England... And I have friends who are boom operators. We get together for lunch and, you know, some of them I can ask, how, how do you do this? How do you handle this? I have friends who are dialogue editors. I have lots of friends who are actors. We have a chapter in the book. It's actually online because I was running out of pages in the book. That's just about how you direct and record voiceovers. But I guess the bottom line is, yeah, I wanted to show every little piece of it, both so that a director or a film student can learn how all these people that are working for them are doing their jobs and can have some respect for the departments and make sure that things move smoothly and understand why you pay money for them, that's reason one. There are three reasons. Reason two, so that the students and wannabe filmmakers or somebody who's got a really great story to tell and 3000 bucks to buy a camera and then says, well, how do I tell my story? They can pick up the book and learn the entire sound process. And the third reason I broke it down is that as I was researching this and working on it, I discovered that there are a lot of little details that you can organize by different functions. 
that there's a chapter on dialogue editing that gets into some of the real tricks. What I'm laying out are here are the rules if you haven't spent 10 years editing dialogue. Here's a body of knowledge that you can actually apply. And I also talk about how to look at a script and think timing because sound takes time. And if you're just writing, Sue picks up the phone, you've got no sense of what the sounds are when she picks up the phone and how long they take. I've, I've had the wonderful experience of working on network projects, animation, where they animated this lovely action right in the middle of a dialogue. And they said, well, okay, well, let's design some sound for it. And I said, you know, if I put some sound on this action to really bring it out and play your joke, we're not going to hear the dialogue line. And they said, well, let's go back and recut this so that the action and the dialogue are staggered. That's a wonderful feeling, and that, that's true sound design. The sound effects that I put under the action, okay, yeah, that's, that's sitting there in your studio, matching the right effects to it, modifying the effects, some wonderful things to do, and I, I talk about how to modify effects in the book. But the real sound design is how do we get the audience to have a certain feeling when they watch this? Okay, again, if you want to grab Jay's book, the Amazon link can be found on our website. Okay, next up, we're going to hear from Rick Veers, and he's going to do a reading of the first chapter of his brand new book, Make Some Noise, Sound Effects Recording for Teens. Obviously, it's written for people who are not already in the industry and are learning about it. So when you're listening to this, kind of go back in your brain to when you were uh, 14, 15, 16 or something and see if this is something that would uh, have changed your life. Because I feel like it would have changed mine because I don't think I knew making noise was allowed when I was 14, 15, 16. So it's kind of something that I think when my son is old enough, I'm going to really get for him and I'm hoping that it'll be something he's interested in. But who knows? But yeah, while you're listening, see if you can think of anyone in your life in that age group that might think that this was a really cool book. Okay, take it away, Rick. And Sean, his son, makes a little appearance at the end. Listen for that. All right. Hello, everybody. My name is Rick Veers, and I am the author of the Sound Effects Bible and the Location Sound Bible. And today, I'm going to read a chapter from my latest book, which is called Make Some Noise, and it's specifically sound effects recording for teens. And my son, Sean, who is now uh, 14 years old, has actually helped with the book, and uh, he's got a little notes at the end of each chapter. So here we go. I'm actually going to start with the, uh, the first chapter, which is an introduction to sound effects. What are sound effects? A sound effect is any recorded or performed sound used to represent action or activity. This could be as simple as the sound of birds chirping in a subdivision or as complicated as a spaceship landing in your backyard. Some people like to record sound effects as a hobby, but most people record sound effects for one of two reasons. The first reason is they are working on a project that needs a specific sound effect. The second reason is they want to make sound effects to sell online. Whatever your reason is for creating sound effects, we'll go over each step in the process to help you get started making noise. Sound effects are heard everywhere, every day. They are used in big blockbuster movies like Transformers, television shows like The Flash, and video games like Call of Duty. Sound effects help make the story come to life by immersing viewers and players in the sonic world of what they're experiencing. However, all of these sounds are created and added to the production at the end of the process during what is called post-production, which literally means after the production. 
So the footsteps you heard Iron Man make in The Avengers were actually recorded and added long after Robert Downey Jr. took off the iconic suit. And the sound of the missiles he shoots was probably just a combination of fireworks and jet plane flybys layered together. Audiences expect to hear the sound of the things they see on screen, so it's up to the filmmakers to provide those sounds. In fact, people are so used to hearing sound that modern-day digital devices have sound effects added to them to recreate the sounds made by their mechanical predecessors, like telephones, doorbells, and even washing machines. Welcome to the magical world of sound effects. Let's discuss the five main types of sound effects. Heart effects, Foley effects, background effects, production elements, and sound design effects. Heart effects. Heart effects are sounds that represent a literal action in a movie, video game, or app. These are the most commonly recognized sound effects. Sounds in this category include things like doorbells, dog barks, and punches. Once recorded, these literal sounds can be reused for many different things in the future. Foley sound effects. Foley is the art of performing sound effects while watching a movie or a video clip. Typical sounds found in this category include footsteps, prop handling, like picking items up and setting them down, cloth movements, like fabrics moving along with the actor and other interactions between characters, like shaking hands and hugging each other. Foley sound effects help bring the characters and their actions to life. Note, although these types of sounds are generally recorded while watching a video, you can record these types of sounds anywhere without watching a screen. Background effects. Background sound effects are ambient sounds in a scene and are sometimes referred to as ambiences or atmos. These types of sounds help tell the audience where the scene is taking place and possibly what time of day it is. For example, the sounds of birds chirping tells the audience that it is morning time, whereas the sound of crickets chirping tells the audience that it's nighttime. Background sound effects can also provide a consistent bed of sound for a scene that was shot with multiple takes that have inconsistent background sounds. Production elements. Production elements are sounds that are typically used for graphics, scene transitions, and other title effects. There are many types of production elements, but the main ones that are used are hits, whooshes, and stingers. These sounds bring otherwise silent graphics to life and are commonly heard in movie trailers. Sound design effects. Sound design effects are sounds that are too difficult to record in real life or the sounds of things that don't actually exist. For example, your project might include a dinosaur roaring, but unfortunately, dinosaurs aren't around anymore to record. Or you might need the sound of the interior of the International Space Station. Sure, it exists, and it's possible to record this, but getting the clearance from NASA or having the budget to arrange a recording expedition is probably not an option. To create these sounds, you'll need to recreate the sound using whatever resources you have. This means you'll need to record material to work with and manipulate the sound in a DAW, which stands for Digital Audio Workstation. Why sound effects are important. Sound effects are the missing ingredient in many productions. Whether it's a big-time Hollywood movie, the latest top-shelf video game, or your next YouTube vid, sound effects play a large role in making the action come to life. While there are tons of sound effects that have been produced over the years, the best sound effects are the ones that are uniquely created for a project. This book will show you how to record, edit, and create your own sound effects without leaving your house. Sound is really important. George Lucas, the director of Star Wars, once said that sound is 50% of the movie-going experience. Some filmmakers argue that sound is even more important. Try this experiment. Watch an action scene from your favorite movie, especially one with gunshots, explosions, fistfights, and car chases. But watch the scene without the sound. Just watch. Now play the scene again, but this time close your eyes and just listen to the scene. 
which time did you notice the biggest impact on your senses? Undoubtedly, you chose the one with sound. Why? Because sound is really important. Lucas's Star Wars is probably the most notable film that raised the bar for sound effects in movies. Sound guru Ben Burtt was responsible for creating the sounds of the spaceships, droids, lightsabers, blasters, and all the other sounds from far, far away. Up until the late 1970s, it was common practice to use synthesizers and theremins for science fiction sounds, or simply reuse sound effects that have already been created and used in other films. Burt had a much different approach. He wanted to create all new material for the film. So he grabbed his recorder and started recording and experimenting with different sounds to see what he liked. The results of his experiments have changed the sound of cinema forever. It was Bert's passion to try new things and to think outside of the box that was the key to creating the out-of-this-world sounds in the film. When Star Wars was released, filmmakers and sound designers began to take the sounds in movies more seriously. It didn't take long for the video game industry to catch up either. You can now play most video games in 5.1 surround sound, with some titles offering DTS soundtracks. This is drastically different than the old mono sound during the beginning days of Atari systems. Audiences of all forms of media are now accustomed to well-prepared sound effects. They notice when sound is missing or is poorly produced. So, it's up to you to give them great sound. Hey guys, Sean here, and these are my notes for the end of Chapter 1. Sound is very important, and I notice it in movies and TV all the time. I love to play video games, and the surround sound really adds a lot to the gameplay. Just remember that sound effects are important, and they make an action have a feel to it because of the sound accompanying it. Our final guest today is Gordon Hempton. If you're not familiar with him, we did an hour-plus-long interview on an earlier episode from a few years ago where we really go deep into his career and what he's all about. If you've not heard that episode, please search it out. It's worth a listen. It was episode number 16, released in December 2013. So instead of another interview with Gordon, instead I reached out and asked him to read a passage from his latest book, Earth is a Solar-Powered Jukebox. He starts off with a bit of history on how he came to write the book, and then reads from it. Hello, I'm Gordon Hempton, the sound tracker, author of Earth is a Solar-Powered Jukebox. Today I'm speaking to you from my home, which is outdoors at the edge of Olympic National Park in the rugged northwest corner of the United States. We can hear in the background one of the reasons why I live here. That's Salt Creek, which has a beautiful and ever-changing voice throughout the annual cycle. Water sounds uh, basically can make all the frequencies the human ear can hear. And I find it a very relaxing place to live. From the places that I listen around the world, I try to learn what the place is telling me. The earth is our home. And when we record with this knowledge and also apply those sounds with that philosophy, we're able to address our audiences in much deeper ways than we would if we were simply just um, finding something interesting to do the trick in a design. In writing Earth is a solar-powered jukebox, I really had to go deep. All 17 chapters correspond to different forces of nature, wind, thunder and rain, flowing water waves, and also the habitats 
such as prairies and tropical forests and deserts and canyons because uh, it's not enough just to furnish sound designers with my best sounds. I also wanted them to have the knowledge on how to apply these sounds correctly so that the audience, whether they think about it or not, the audience can actually be guided towards their destination in the same way that our ancestors were guided in the past as nomadic tribes. And just one example, which is very practical in the industry, is during gameplay we might want to uh, lead the player into the direction of prosperity, perhaps the direction of the goal, or uh, some uh, clue to find. And in that case, a bird uh, just chirping away, engaging in song, is really the route to go. The human ear is more tuned to bird song than it is even to our own voices. And I believe this is nature's navigational beacon which guided our nomadic ancestors across vast areas towards prosperity when they were trying to find a new homeland. Birdsong is, not remarkably, the number one indicator of habitats prosperous to humans. And here we go. We can listen for a moment to the background equally as loud as the creek is a truck and a fly and all these things because sound is information and if we're going to design intelligently we need to use this information in ways that make sense but I didn't feel really satisfied in providing information about how to use these sounds I also know that no library is complete and new sounds are being discovered and recorded all the time so I for each chapter I also included how to record basically how to find a suitable location what to bring equipment choices how to keep your equipment dry and operating how to keep yourself safe and also even in some cases as specific as where to put the microphone uh, because for instance in um, uh, lake and pond areas when in wetlands uh, the first few feet of the water has a special acoustic property and once you penetrate that on a calm day you're basically tapping into the entire uh, surface area boundary of that water of body as a huge ear and it produces dramatically improved recordings with a much lower noise floor and thirdly, in writing the book, I wanted to do more than educate. I wanted to share a little bit about myself because, well, when we listen, when we truly listen, we have to allow ourselves to be changed by what we hear. And I have certainly been changed during my life. I, I would be an entirely different person if I hadn't been a nature sound recordist, sound designer, and uh, my change today is equally as active as any other time in my life. There is just so much going on and so much uh, worthwhile uh, experiences still to be had despite the rising levels of noise pollution. 
everybody has to pay for their education. And you're likely going to buy the wrong equipment. And you're likely going to be unprepared and experience failure. And hopefully you can also experience uh, the disappointment of failure as the epiphany in disguise that it truly is. Um, we're all in this together. And we wouldn't be doing what we're doing unless it weren't important in the background now. That's a Navy growler. And the Navy just received uh, yesterday morning a permit granted by the U.S. Forest Service to do electronic warfare exercises over and around Olympic National Park, which up until that time had been uh, our quietest, least noise-polluted uh, national park in the lower 48. And it just underscores why we must do what we do and do it earnestly, because it's not about winning or losing. It's about just expressing who you are, because besides listeners, we have a voice. And it's through your own careful listening, recording, and sound designing that I hope that you can gain your voice and share it with the world. I'll wait a moment for the sound to vanish, and then I'll begin reading from the introduction. Modern life has taught us to give high importance to loud sounds. Sports arenas and stadiums display noise meters on their giant scoreboards urging their fans to make some noise for the home team and, in some instances, try to break previous decibel levels that exceed that made by jet engines. In the natural world, however, loud and obvious sounds are rarely as important as soft, quiet, faint sounds from either nearby or arriving from a great distance. Faint sounds near the threshold of hearing are the earliest of clues where new information becomes available, either functioning as an early warning system to avert danger or possibly signaling a food source. By detecting faint sounds, an animal gains a significant survival advantage over others whose hearing is not as sensitive. When it comes to listening, sound recording, and sound design, the modern approach has been to pay special attention to loud, dramatic sounds and let the background sounds take care of themselves. This is a mistake. Loud sounds have their place in sound design, but far more important for effective sound design are the faint sounds, because the audience is already wired to go there. A faint twisp and the audience is all ears. Sound designers can tap a whole realm of subtle background sounds to foreshadow events. The biggest impact of noise pollution is arguably this. Meaningful information provided by faint sounds cannot be heard. One person speaking to another on a busy street corner will not hear vocal intonations that may say more about the person's mood or intent than their words. The same is true for hearing the size of a raindrop onto what it falls, making it possible to navigate at night through the woods without a flashlight or the distance of thunder and the dimensions of the valley, indicating how much time we would have to run for cover and where. 
Even at low levels, noise pollution impairs our ability to use a key aspect of our hearing, thresholds. It is not surprising that noise-polluted areas not only lower speech intelligibility, but favor antisocial behavior, increase our sense of insecurity, add stress, and reduce health and welfare. So, when it comes to selecting a place in nature to listen or record, you will want a spot without noise pollution for at least a few minutes at a time. If you filter out the noise pollution later in the studio, you run the risk of filtering out faint sounds of importance. But moreover, you're essentially limiting your achievement. You will also be recording stressed bioacoustic ecosystems that will not sound musical or as natural as places without noise pollution. The equivalent of removing all the bass from the string, brass, percussion, and woodwing sections of an orchestra than writing new music to fill the space. The profound influence of noise pollution on nature's music cannot be overstated. Thank you for listening. Oh man, I could listen to him talk all day. You can find his book at the Quiet Planet website, There you can also check out his amazing natural ambience libraries. Use the promo code TONEBENDERS at checkout to get a 20% discount on anything at his site. Okay, the final book we're going to talk about today is Do You Hear What I Hear by Helen Borton. This is a children's book. It's not going to help you learn how to do your craft better. But if you have any children in your life that are at all interested in sound, it's a beautiful book. The illustrations done by Helen Borton are incredible. They are so beautiful. They're all kind of uh, stamp paintings and sponge paintings. And the book goes through all the different kinds of sounds that there are and explains the difference between soft sounds and loud sounds, high sounds and low sounds, short sounds, long sounds, scary sounds, soothing sounds. And it kind of teaches the kids how to listen to the world around them in a constructive way and not just let the sounds wash over them. Although part of it does talk about how nice it is to just let sounds wash over you. But anyway, the book is a real keeper for me. I got it given to one of my kids as a present, and uh, it's made my son come into my edit room every once in a while when I'm working from home and ask me, is that a a high sound or a low sound? Those kind of questions that he never would have thought to ask before. So if you have maybe a three-year-old to a six-year-old or something, Helen Borton's Do You Hear What I Hear, which was originally published in 1960 but just got reissued, uh, it's a definite something that you should get. It's, It's a keeper, if you will. Another interesting thing about uh, Helen Borton, after she finished a successful career as an illustrator, she changed focus and became a radio documentary producer for NPR, where she made 44 national radio docs and actually won a Peabody as well. So she's a pretty interesting character. Okay, so that's all the books that we have for today. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. If you want to take part in the show, send us an email at info at tonebenderspodcast.com. If you have any ideas for the show or segments you might want to produce yourself that we can air, that would be cool. Just let us know, give us a pitch, and we'll see if we're interested. If you're going to be shopping at Amazon or at B&H, try and go through our links on the page. If you want to buy uh, any of the books that are available on Amazon, that would be Helen Borton's Do You Hear What I Hear, Jay Rose's book on the entire sound process, or David Weiss's book on sound supervision. Please go through the links on our Amazon page. That would be awesome. I don't mean to keep pushing that, but if you're going to buy them anyway, might as well buy them through us and we get a taste of it. 
So thanks for listening. We got a couple really cool episodes coming up. We've got a couple more of the New York interviews that we did coming your way very soon. So please stay tuned. This is Tim Muirhead, Tonebenders Podcast. See you later. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the ToneBenders on Twitter or find ToneBenders Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at ToneBendersPodcast.com. Thank you.